Hi, I'm Ray Otis, and this is episode 77 of Plundergrounds, Dungeon Logic. Plundergrounds, Plundergrounds, welcome back to a brand new show. Ray's gonna take you where you didn't know you wanted to go. Fantasy and dungeon delve, science fiction, watch yourselves. The TLDR for this episode is that logic in adventuring spaces is good, but only up to a point, and that gaps in logic make for a kind of higher verisimilitude. Uh, how I got to that thesis was that I asked this question on multiple social media platforms the other day, do you care about logic in the floor plan of your dungeons? And the overwhelming response was yes. Most people want some sort of logic in their dungeons or their adventuring space. You know, dungeons here is just kind of a stand-in for adventuring space. It could be a, a cave system. It could be a, a city or a building within a city, like a big palace. It could be... Um, it mostly applies, I think, to man-made structures, but it could even apply to, like, the way a forest is laid out and your encounters in a forest are laid out. And most people do want some sort of logic to that. Or maybe to state the converse, they care when it seems extremely illogical and out of context. Uh, several people said that they regret not being able to go back to their youthful selves and not care anymore about where the monsters go poo, but uh, but that they can't do that. That drives them, you know, their adult minds have taken over and they can't uh, stop thinking about such things. One respondent said that it's important to have some logic in the space for the players uh, so that they can be uh, better able to predict what's ahead. I thought that was a great point. Uh, that uh, seems to me like it's important for players to feel like they have something they can figure out, and it's important in terms of making their characters feel competent. Uh, it gives them, um, helps them build plans of attack or ambush, right, to kind of have a really basic understanding of the space and how it might be arranged. So I thought that was a great point. But I want to make a few arguments against having too much logic in your space. And these have to do with how things are, you know, like, I'm going to say reality, but like um, some, some kind of realistic thoughts on why spaces don't always make sense. My first point is that there are changes over time. You don't want your space to feel like it sprung out of the earth yesterday. Or, or if you do, I guess that's a, that would be something characteristic about it, that it's all fresh and new. Uh, but in most cases, you're working with a space that has existed for many years, decades at least, sometimes centuries or even longer. And the, the time uh, in which it was built and how it's being used currently um, you know, often there's multiple waves of inhabitants between the builders and the current residents, and each one of those has different needs, and so they ad adapt the buildings to suit. Um, technology changes. You know, houses built in the 1700s didn't have toilets, uh, <laughs> but uh, but people still live in houses built in the 1700s, and they have toilets now. Uh, you know, they things get refitted and changed. Um, Human beings, when they take over a domicile from another human being, they do things like turn bedrooms into home offices and drop walls to open up the space or convert attics and porches into bonus rooms. 
And that's just discontinuity between humans. Uh, imagine if you, a human handed off a house to uh, gopher people or something. <laughs> you know, they would have a whole different way of thinking about things, which actually kind of brings me to my second point. But first, I want to say that um, a, a good indicator of how changes over time matter is how bad archaeologists are, or how hard it is, I should say, for archaeologists to guess at the use of Neolithic buildings. So you take a site like Gobekli Tepe or Stonehenge, and there's lots of speculation as to how they were built and what they were used for, but nobody knows for sure, and it's all just kind of educated guesswork. And we assume there's some logic there that we're trying to access, and we're being kind of rational about how we approach guessing at at that what that logic is but uh we are so separated from the builders in time and really in mindset uh that it's very hard for us to really understand what was going on there so my second point my second point has to do with differences of worldview what is logical or even intuitive for one species and culture is often radically different from what is logical or intuitive for another uh, goblins don't need human-sized ceilings and hallways, do they? So if they build a space, it's going to be very hard for human-sized adventurers to operate in that space. Uh, it's going to be to the advantage of goblins. Kuatoa, um, they might use pools for spawning, whereas dwarves would use them for quenching metal, and elves would use them as some kind of steam baths or something. Um, a religious culture would take a large space and set it aside to honor their god, uh, while a hive culture would use that large space to huddle for safety or sleep. And a dragon would certainly use it as the place for their all-important horde. If there's a logic to be discovered, um, characters should need to work for that, right? That they have to first think about who or what um, lives and or lived there <laughs> and be straining to think like those inhabitants in order to figure out the space. And I think it's important to, if, if we're really going to make a world that feels like it's inhabited by different races, different species, and uh, different cultures, that we apply some weirdness to make the logic of the space feel somewhat foreign. And sometimes the way to do that is to basically not have logic, to, to just sort of generate some things and then let players speculate as to what the logic is um, and what it was used for. And then as the GM, you can kind of sit back and use the best ideas and pretend that's what you had in mind all along. <laughs> uh, and so uh, the third point I want to make. Some spaces are illogical by nature. Um, some spaces strive to be non-intuitive. A mad wizard's death trap, dungeon, a modern funhouse, uh, a massive tomb made to befuddle grave robbers. If players get a sense right away that the purpose of a building is for some bizarre uh, you know, purpose, <laughs> then they're going to be more at peace with the idea that the building lacks logic. I think to wrap it up, I just want to say that most satisfying and indeed the most realistic compositions often mix the new with the known. Um, humans crave variety and mystery, and so if, if they're in a space that is utterly predictable, that will become tedious and boring. And on the other hand, humans crave the familiar. Uh, if you go into a space that makes no sense, that can also be unsettling and boring in a different kind of way. Uh, you just give up trying to figure it out because none of it makes sense. 
So most spaces should contain some mix of the familiar or predictable and the unfamiliar or bizarre. There's a time and a place for spaces that skew hard toward one of the poles, but the result of those spaces, oddly enough, is going to be the same no matter which pole they hold to. Uh, if it's in the unknowable interior of an alien spaceship or the utterly known interior of a small-town tavern, players are going to get bored with those very quickly and the, and the backgrounds will, uh, or the setting will fade into the background, right? The, the space will, will quickly become not a thing for the players. And that's fine. You may not want your space to be a feature of the adventure. You may want them to feel sort of grounded and familiar so that you can highlight uh, a political exchange, for instance. Um, or you may want it to be so weird that they can't get their brain around it, um, and that gives you the freedom to, to bring up monsters that uh, they've never seen before and behaviors that make absolutely no sense. And uh, that kind of funhouse experience could be, could be cool for a while. I played around with that in my uh, Dun Dungeon World zine, uh, Plundergrounds in One Bite. That, that's a weird environment. It doesn't have to make a lot of sense because it's set up to be weird. But it, you can only do that for so long, right, before players start to feel um, dissatisfied. It, it's just human nature that we want both the, the comfort of the knowable and the excitement of the unfamiliar. And uh, you want some measure of, of going back and forth between those or mixing those up to really engage players with a setting. Um, so give them a few logical handles and make them work for the rest. I think that's all I wanted to say about that, but I just thought it was an interesting subject. I, you know, I asked that question sort of on a whim and, uh, I think I was struggling with the idea of, I've, I've been toying around for, for a while with building a large setting of my own, just more of a creative exercise than anything, not necessarily to force players to run through it, but, uh, <laughs> just to kind of give myself a, an inventory of, things that I like that um, all mesh together in some sort of fabric and the overwhelming uh, nature of that, you know, uh, how much logic do I have to come up with is a little scary. So I, it, it, I think it's good to kind of give yourself a, a bit of a break there and say, yes, there are some basic questions that players will have. Where do the goblins go to the bathroom? Um, what do they eat? How does that food source get replenished over time? Or does it? You know, are they just in here despoiling and when it's all filled up with their waste and they've eaten everything there is to eat, they'll, they'll move on? You, you know, those are some basic questions that are worth asking. But uh, if you go too deep... You know, it doesn't, I don't think it pays off, right? There's, there's a diminishing returns on going really deep with your logic and having some sense of how the site is layered with different perspectives and different eras really helps it be uh, a richer, more interesting site. I'll leave you with a recommendation. Uh, Tony Dowler has put out a game. I don't know. This has been ages ago and it's hard to call it a game. It's more of a kind of a thought exercise called how to host a dungeon. I have mentioned it on here before. I find the instructions a little hard to follow, but the overall conception is amazing. Uh, it's about building a dungeon starting with, uh, it's, it's, it's the James Mishner version of building a dungeon. <laughs> if you've ever read Centennial, you know what I'm talking about. James Mishner starts the novel Centennial by talking about the geological formation of the Midwest and the Platte River, I think it is. And uh, there's a chapter on the Diplodocus, and there's a chapter on giant beavers. Uh, and, you know, he, he takes a while before he gets to the fur trappers and traders and the farmers of America. And uh, it, it's, it's fascinating 
And with how to host a dungeon, you sort of build a geology first, and then you build a primordial age where you might have really old, scary monsters, and then there's another age. You know, there's ages after age where, like, maybe dark elves move in and build a whole bunch of stuff, and then they get pushed out by uh, goblins, or you know, and it's, there's there's ways to kind of resolve these little um, fights that make it some somewhat random. And in the end, you have this kind of elevation map of a dungeon that is very interesting and nuanced and uh, complex and and uh, ready for you to sort of draw out a, a better uh, better version of it for adventurers or maybe you just kind of work off the fly on that but it, it gives you a great idea of what kind of things they might find in the dungeon and how they might present themselves in, in some ways as illogical and yet you sort of know the reason why they're there um, the giant bones of a of an ancient worm or something like that that you find in uh you know, just sort of laying around the back room of a dwarven forge. Uh, you know, uh, those were left over from the primordial age, and the dwarves were going to build something with them, and they never did, or they just kind of collected them and shoved them back there because they didn't know what else to do with them, or maybe they were crushing them into powder uh, and that the calcium was used for uh, some kind of process. Uh, it, you know, there's just it's it's it makes for a fascinating bit of history, and it makes the space feel like it has tons of logic to it, even if maybe it it doesn't ultimately have you know to go that deep. Okay. Uh, oh, and by the way, I should also say that Tony Dollar has been working on a second edition of How to Host Your Dungeon for several years, at least. And he has some kind of cool Twitch videos up where he walks you through building a dungeon. And he's a, a cool uh, artist, and so you get to see him draw as he talks. And it's kind of like watching uh, Bob Ross, except in, in, in fantasy dungeon world, right? And I, I don't mean to be insulting to Tony by calling him Bob Ross. Uh, or, and I also don't mean to insult Bob Ross. But, <laughs> but, you know, he's a little bit of a formulaic painter. Um, and Tony's working off a formula, too, right? He's got the formula of the game, and so so he's drawing things in response to the formula, and and he has his uh, you know kind of set style, and it's really fun to watch. If you ever ever watch those, I'll try to find uh, some of the newer ones and link them in the show notes. Hey everybody, I just wanted to drop a note here to say that uh, I'm essentially restarting this podcast. That sounds funny to say when I really have only been off for about a week, but I took a long vacation and then after that long vacation, there was some huge work work projects. We landed a whole bunch of business and then we were preparing for our annual user conference um, where we host all the, the users of our software uh, who want to come and, and learn more and that takes it's like a long week of training. On the other end of that, I'm pretty exhausted in a good way, um, and I'm way behind. I've got, I think, 40-some podcasts to listen to at this point. <laughs> I don't know how successful. I'm just going to let them play, and uh, you know, I've, I've been letting them play for the last couple of days and, and uh, catching what I can out of them and not worrying too much about it. But uh, I have, I don't know, seven or eight pages of notes for various things I wanted to talk about on the podcast. And if I think of those as a backlog, then that gives me kind of an artificial task list. And I don't really want to do that. I got lots of calls that I need to get to, call-ins that I need to get to. Um, and if I feel like those are things I have to get to, then that's also going to give me kind of an artificial task list. So instead, I'm just starting fresh and uh, addressing the things that come up that interest me. If some of those 
old ideas that I've got notes jotted down for uh, continue to be interesting ideas. I'll probably talk about them. Otherwise, I won't. And as for the call-ins, I will clean those up at some point. I may not play all of them. I may just kind of summarize so that I can move on more quickly because, uh, as you know, you can get overwhelmed by all the things you think you need to do. And sometimes the best way to get beyond that is to just stop thinking you need to do them. <laughs> I, I have a, a, a I, I I don't know if I invented this. I think I did, but I, it's been ages ago. I started calling it Project Inbox Zero, and uh, other people caught on to it. And now I think I've seen it out there on the web, so I'm wondering if I actually did invent that phrase or if I stole it. But uh, for me, the way to do Project Inbox Zero, uh, and the, by the way, what I'm talking about is emptying out your email inbox, you know, when it gets kind of crazy full. Um, I have an archive folder where I keep all my old emails in case I need them. And this is specifically about work, but when I go to clean them out, I just sort them all by who they're from, and I go then one at a time to each coworker, and uh, I think about that coworker, and I think, is that coworker waiting on anything from me? Is there anything in you know? I'm not. I don't read the emails. I just think about the person, and I think, are they waiting on something from me? Or is there unresolved business that I know of with this client, and or with this client, with this coworker? Sometimes a client, but usually a coworker. Um, and if there isn't, I take all their emails and archive them. I just throw them into my archive folder. Uh, and then I go to the next employee and do the same. And if I have some doubt, I'll go talk to that person and say, hey, are you waiting on anything from me? And they'll let you know if they are. Uh, because everything in there, if you read it, it's going to seem really important. But obviously, it's not that important, right? Uh, and it, and the fact that it's in your archive folder means you, you haven't lost it. You can go find it if you need to. If somebody says, hey, I sent you an email about that and I never heard a response, then you can go find that email respond. In the meantime, uh, it's a great way to clean up your inbox. And uh, maybe not the ideal way. I mean, if you were really good at this, you um, would address each and every one of those, but that takes hours. And if you're really good at it, you use the touch it once mentality and you would have taken care of it when you opened the email in the first place. But <laughs> you didn't do that. And so now you've got to clean up and that's the way I do the cleanup. It's kind of like that uh, Japanese thing where you hold it in your hand and see if it gives you pleasure, right? Before you, th <laughs> before you throw it away, which I, I think is a kind of a hokey pop psychology version of, of whatever idea that was originally. But uh, this is this is my email cleanup version of it. <laughs> it's very mercenary. Thank you for listening. This has been another Plundergrounds. I'm Ray Otis signing off. My opening theme song is by Logan Howard, who does the amazing Swordbreaker Zenon podcast. I have uh, various websites. I've got jellysaw.com, where I put show notes for this and some free games. I've got uh, an old-time radio blog called... Um, Ray's Radio Revival. I haven't kept it up for a while, but what's there is still good, and I will get back to that someday. i uh, got just lots of things going on, and I collect links to all of those things in one website that's uh, very minimalistic, so you can just go and look at the list and say, okay, here's the things I'm interested in, and follow the links down. And that website is www.rayotis.com. That's R-A-Y-O-T-U-S. And until next time, look out for Rust Monsters. <laughs>